Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman next year at UCLA, got elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois, and also co-host this podcast with Jill. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the um, author of The Watergate Girl, about my experiences as the only woman on the trial team. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst and was very lucky to be the beneficiary of the transition reports and transition help that I got before I became the general counsel of the Army during the Carter administration. So I'm very excited today to have a very much an expert on transition as we face a real transition problem uh, right now. It's clear um, as of almost more than a week ago, Biden would be the president-elect and Harris would be the vice president-elect. And that meant that the transfer of power from the current administration to theirs should be well underway now. Officially, under the Presidential Transition Act, the process begins long before the results of the election are officially certified or ascertained by GSA or even just reported by the media. In fact, the transition process begins while the election is still underway. Nominees of a political party, official nominees, have certain rights under the act to get briefings and resources. To help us discuss what usually happens during a transition, we have with us today a wonderful guest who can talk about the importance of an orderly transfer of power, both at home and abroad. We have with us today, Chris Liu. Chris is a former United States Deputy Secretary of Labor. He served as assistant to President Obama and White House Cabinet Sec Secretary from 2009 to 2013. And most relevant to today's conversation, Chris served as executive director of President Obama's transition team in 2008. He is currently a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Thank you, Chris, for being with us today. Jill Victor, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Of course. So um, I'd like to get started by helping, having you help my generation kind of understand the purpose behind this transition period. Um, you know, my peers and I, we all took U.S. history and government classes, and these are the type of things I wish we had learned just a tad more about. So can you start by explaining why we need months between when election results are official and inauguration day? It's a great question, Victor, and it really is an anomaly if you look at politics around the world. Every four or eight years, the uh, we, we go through a presidential transition. And on one day, January 20th, and it will be 2021 coming up, 4,000 or so political appointees leave the federal government. And then uh, right soon after that, several hundred come in from the new administration. And if you think about it, you would never run any company this way. You would never run a university this way, where the entire senior leadership walks out the door. And the fact that we pull this off every four or eight years is you know, remarkable when we're talking about the U.S. government, the largest, most powerful entity in the world. And so in order to make this turnover as seamless as possible, that planning really has to begin well before Election Day. 
This year, for instance, there's only 78 days between uh, election day and inauguration day. And if you're both trying to figure out who should fill all of these positions, as well as what the policies they should implement are, that takes a lot of time. And so this process starts months and months before uh, the uh, the president-elect is even chosen. Right, right. And we know, you know, to my understanding, there isn't much guidance in terms of presidential elections in the Constitution, which makes this a bit tricky. Um, but we do know that, you know, the president must be elected um, on January 20th or the president must leave office by then. Um, but there is this important federal statute that was created in 1963 called the Presidential Transition Act, um, which you know much about, which effectively, you know, sets the groundwork for what should happen during this um, interregnum period. And in that statute, it states, quote, um, any disruption occasioned by the transfer of executive power could be produced, could produce our results detrimental to the safety and well-being of the United States and its people. So um, can you first kind of briefly walk us through what can go wrong during this period? Like, you know, are there examples of, um, you know, war, or, you know, foreign powers trying to attack and take advantage of us during this, you know, lack of control or kind of what can go wrong to disrupt this process? You know, we're not just talking about the successful beginning to an, in, to an administration. And for that, we only need to look to this current administration where uh, in 2016, before Election Day, Governor Chris Christie was planning Donald Trump's transition. Uh, once Trump won, the day after Election Day, Christie was fired. All of their materials were thrown in, literally thrown into a garbage can and they started all over again. And so I think when you look at the way that this current administration has been run, the really hectic, chaotic way. Obviously, a lot of that is due to the president himself, but a lot of it is due to the, the poorly organized transition, which I had a chance to see in 2016 when I was transitioning out of government. But I think when you look more broadly about homeland security, national security issues, you know, I know in 2008, 2009, you know, one of the reasons we spent so much time on transition planning was it was going to be the first post 9 11 transition. And this was something that President George W. Bush um, was very concerned about and wanted to make sure that this handover was seamless. And it turned out to be important. Uh, subsequently, it's been reported that there was um, the threat of a terrorist attack on the inauguration, the swearing in of President Obama. And in order to address that threat, both the outgoing Bush administration and the incoming Obama administration had to engage in, you know, long conversations about what do we do if this happens? Because this period of time when people are changing jobs and administrations are turning over is a particularly tenuous time. It creates vulnerabilities. And so you really need to be mindful of this. And then, you know, going back eight years earlier, the 9-11 Commission found that the delay in the Bush 43 national security team being onboarded in part because of the uh, Bush v. Gore uh, recount in Florida, uh, created a vulnerability leading into the 9-11. So we're not just talking about a theoretical risk. We've actually seen real risks just over the last 20 years. Right, right. And you know, in terms of you know ensuring the smooth transition of power, there are so many key actors involved, and one of them, um, kind of highlighted by this current transition of power, is uh, the GSA. And this was a position I didn't know much about, and I presume others who are involved in politics also might not have heard if it weren't for um, this transition period. So, um, can you explain what the role of the GSA plays in kind of running the government and what its role is in this transition period? You know, GSA is the government agency that deals with uh, facilities and IT and uh, other kind of nuts and bolts of how the government runs. 
It's not a office that normally is thrust into the limelight and for good reason. And I will tell you, it was um, in 2008, here's my experience. Uh, on election night, uh, the election was called at 11 p.m. for Senator Obama. And that was when uh, the West Coast states, their polls closed and networks were able to do a projection. That was 11 p.m. Within two hours, I received a letter from the GSA administrator. And I, again, if you're on, listening to the podcast, you can't <laughs> see it, but I've, I'm holding it up for those that are watching the, yeah. the, the video. This letter came out within two hours, essentially saying, I ascertain that you, President-elect Obama and Senator Joseph R. Biden, are the successful candidates for the office of president and vice president, and you're entitled to federal resources and support. And I, I point this out because this happens every four or eight years, and it happens so automatically, we don't even know who the GSA administrator is. And so I think what's important for people to understand in this moment we're in right now, this isn't a partisan food fight between Trump and Biden. What's happening right now is really a historical anomaly. Uh, this is not normal. And there are significant consequences that go along with this delay. And that should trouble you regardless of what your uh, political beliefs are. Yeah, uh, there's so much to follow up on what you've said. Let me start with, um, you mentioned Gore, uh, who, as we all know, won the popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. And there was a challenge that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which delayed the ascertainment of the winner, so that there was a delay. Now, that was a very different situation because we were talking about 500 votes. That was what the difference was in Florida. And Florida was the decisive state. Without Florida, it would have been a different outcome. So fighting over 400 votes made sense. Uh, there was a recount and there was a Florida Supreme Court decision before it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled on December 12th. And of course, until then, it wasn't clear who the winner of the race was. Um, and Gore conceded the next day after the decision and the GSA administrator ascertained that Bush would be the next president and the transition began at that very moment. So first of all, let's talk about concession because at that point, uh, Gore did concede, but is that necessary? Does Donald Trump have to concede before GSA can ascertain the winner? Jill, it's an important question because, you know, as abnormal as this delayed transition is, is also the abnormality of a president not conceding. You know, there has been a long history of this country of, you know, the most bitter adversaries uh, recognizing the importance of concession in order for the country to go on. You know, you go back to, if you're a student of history, Herbert Hoover and Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who they had a really awful uh, battle and they hated each other. And even then, on election night, Hoover sent a telegram to FDR, you know, pledging his cooperation. So right now, as we tape this, the president, you know, some 13 days after election day, not conceding is abnormal. Uh, and as Jill points out, there's no requirement that there be a concession before the transition begin. In fact, if you go back to 2000, what's interesting is that even while this court case was going on and, and, and the recount in the court case, uh, the outgoing Clinton administration allowed uh, uh, Governor George Bush to receive the intelligence 
briefings uh, that a president-elect normally receives. And right now that's being withheld um, from president-elect Biden. And so um, this administration has wrapped a lot of things into this ascertainment idea, which historically has not been the case. And leaving that aside, I mean, the GSA administrator has said this point that, well, I'm going to reach and ascertain, I'm going to ascertain the winner based on the Constitution. Well, the Constitution actually says nothing about concessions or transitions. What it does talk about is the Electoral College. So if that's what she's hinting at, the Electoral College does not meet until December 14th. Um, and that would be an incredible delay if that's what she was talking about. And that's certainly not the way that any previous administration has interpreted this. So I think you've now twice said something that I think summarizes perhaps this entire uh, Trump administration, which is this isn't normal. And it really isn't. He is not following any of the norms. Um, the accusation, for example, that the media doesn't decide the election. Of course they don't. They report the numbers, which add up to 306 electoral votes for Joseph Biden, which makes him the president-elect. Um, but so now you've mentioned about this is an extraordinary delay uh, along the lines of what happened in Bush Gore. What are the consequences of a delay in the ascertainment and the official state of trans transition? And I, I also want to mention for our viewers that and, and our listeners that the transition actually starts before the election because there is a pre-election transition uh, that is defined in an amendment to the Transition Act of 63 that gives rights to even just the candidates who are nominees of a major party. They start getting briefings, and yet Biden and Harris have been denied that opportunity, and the transition team hasn't been allowed to, for example, interview the current incumbents to find out what's pending. So if we could talk about what this delay means to the transition team, um, areas I'm familiar with are how it could affect the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense. This year, obviously, COVID would be and the transition about how to handle the vaccine. So can you talk about some of those areas that could be impacted by this incredible refusal to accept what seems to be reality? You raised so many important points there, Jill. I mean, um, it's important to note that the pre-election period for us began five months before, five, six months before election day. Uh, then Senator Obama and I first started talking about the importance of a transition. And, and that's important because, again, as we've talked about, this is the a handover of power of the most important uh, most powerful organization in the world. We've already talked about some of the homeland security and national security risks, but it is important also to understand this moment that we're in. We are in the middle of an economic recession, much like we were in 2008, but we're also in the middle of a pandemic. And when we talk about the thing that's on foremost on all of our minds, which is vaccine development and distribution, mm -hmm. um, this is not a problem that's going to be solved before January 20th. We all know that. And so what you would hope is that whatever the federal government is doing is done in a seamless way so that 
January 21st is no different than January 19th. And in order to do that, you need the outgoing and incoming teams to have those conversations, as well as around you know, what we're going to do in terms of economic relief. There's a bunch of things that are happening right now on the economy. For instance, um, extended unemployment insurance benefits expire at the end of December. There's, um, there's um, uh, eviction foreclosures that are going to expire. There's student loan forbearances that are expiring. So again, there is only one president at one time. But in the national interest, it's important for both sides at least to understand what is happening at the moment and to cooperate as much as possible. This is certainly what we tried to do in 2008. If you recall, we were in the middle or the beginning of the financial crisis, the housing crisis that led to the Great Recession. Again, there was only one president at one time with President George W. Bush, but his economic team talked to our incoming economic team so that at least we understood the actions they were taking. We were free to uh, reject them, uh, but they also understood that it would help if we bought into what they were doing so there would be continuity. So look, most people outside of Washington don't care uh, about this. They see this as a food fight, which it isn't. But what they wanted to do is to ensure that national security is protected, homeland security is protected, services are being provided, uh, health and safety are being protected. And that none of that stuff happens uh, unless there's cooperation between both sides. Yeah. I, and I, I can tell you that from my experience, first of all, as a person who was being considered for a number of positions in the Carter administration, I was able to read the transition reports, which were based on the reporting from the current administration and from interviews that the incoming administration had with those people. So that, for example, at the Department of Justice, they could tell us what cases are pending, what possible undercover activities are ongoing that you might have to make a decision on in day one. Um, the same thing was true in the Pentagon where exactly what the responsibilities of each job in the Pentagon were laid out and what the current threats were uh, was laid out. And that's not happening now because no one is talking from the current administration to the incoming administration. But all right, let, let's go to 9-11, which you mentioned earlier, um, where the 9-11 Commission basically said that the delay that happened in the transition had hurt national security and affected the outcome of 9-11. Um, but the question I have, and I, this may seem simplistic, is that 9-11 was eight months after the inauguration. So whatever the, the delay, which was, it was long, it was more than a month, but didn't they have time to catch up so that what was the 9-11 Commission saying about why that delay may have impacted our response to 9-11? So I don't know that they were saying that the, the delay in the transition led to 9-11, but I think what they were implying was that there was a vulnerability. And Jill, you're 100% right. I mean, Yes, they were. They still had eight months before 9/11 uh, after uh, President Bush took office. But to take a step back from this, the way I look at this, look if two de if if the de Department of Labor, where I spend time at, at the Department of Education, the outgoing and incoming teams are not fully in sync. It's not ideal, but it's like it's it's not life threatening. 
I do seriously wonder when we're talking about homeland security and national security, and particularly this idea that we want to get people in as quickly as possible to these agencies. We want to make sure that they're fully read into, as you point out, the threats that they're going to face, uh, and that they're, as importantly, they, they understand how to process the information coming in from different sources to relate to the right people and then to coordinate. And Jill, as you know, I mean, so much of government is obviously being understanding the subject matter, but also understanding how government works. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not the easiest thing to understand all of these processes. And so I think in particular in the national security front, you want these people in as early as possible. No, certainly Bush v. Gore did not lead to 9-11, but would it have been better in terms of coordination had the, the Bush team gotten in earlier? Absolutely. And I do think this is what I really worry about right now. You know, even without any cooperation, one can learn a lot about what's happening inside of these agencies from, you know, budget documents or congressional testimonies or GAO reports. But boy, there's nothing quite like sitting across the table from somebody, particularly in the national security agencies and getting a full download on the threats, the operations that are happening. Uh, and it doesn't feel like that's going to happen during this transition at all. Right. And and actually, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there is a pre-election transition that's set up by the Presidential Transition Act. And that doesn't seem to have been happening because Joe Biden should have been getting briefings from the very moment that he became the official nominee of the Democratic Party. And that hasn't been happening. And it would be much better for America, as you're pointing out, it may not cause a problem, but it certainly would enhance the ability to take over and be ready to go on day one. Um, so, I mean, even in terms of, the, you mentioned earlier, there are 4,000 uh, political appointees and about 1,200 of them need Senate confirmation. That takes a long time to get all the background checks. Mm -hmm. And until this transition is ascertained, uh, in the official word, even the security clearances aren't happening. So we could face a time on January 21st where there is no one who has a security clearance, even though they are now currently in office. And that seems to me to be a problem, just, just looking at the security clearance process or the interviews of, as you've mentioned, it's better to sit across the table and ask the questions than to not have had the benefit of that. So what can be done to sort of get that process underway right now before too much more delay? You know, I'm glad you mentioned the security clearance aspect of this because you, Jill, know this well. Mm -hmm. uh, it just takes a long time to go through this process. I mean, you, you know, you have, to you have to gather a lot of information, in particular financial information. It takes a long time for the people doing the investigation, not only to go through the records, but you they literally talk to somebody who is knows you from every part of your past, including all your previous employment. It just takes time. And it takes time if you're going into any senior position, even if it doesn't require the handling of classified information. But particularly when you're going into a national security agency, you can't really access a lot of the documents. You really can't engage in those conversations uh, unless you've, you've gone through the clearance process. And, it, and it's not just it takes time for each person. When you multiply that by the number of people who are, who are trying to get through 
uh, the pipeline right now, it creates a fairly significant bottleneck. The one thing that I take a little comfort in, actually a lot of comfort in, is if there's somebody who can overcome this, it's Joe Biden. I mean, this is a person who has spent, you know, 40 years in and around government. Uh, he, he, he doesn't need a memo to be written for him about what the National right. Security Council does. He's surrounded by a lot of very, very smart people who have spent time in government. And so I think they can overcome that. But just simply look at one of the stories over the past couple of days. Um, NBC reported that um, the State Department is not providing assistance to the president-elect uh, in terms of place, returning congratulatory phone calls from foreign leaders. Now, again, the president-elect knows these foreign leaders. He can do this stuff in his sleep. But why wouldn't you want him to have the full benefit of not just you know someone at the State Department placing the call over a secure line, but just reading him into like, hey, here's the last... 10 things that we have done with this country. Here are things you may want to thank them for. Here are things you may not want to mention. All of that is useful. And again, none of this is partisan. This is for the good of the country. That is so important. Yeah. Something you said reminded me of how long it takes for the security clearance. Um, in my case, they not only ask somebody in every aspect of your life, but they do a real in-depth look they found a, part, a, a temporary job I had. I was working for a temporary agency and I had forgotten to list a job I had for a few weeks at a place called Lord's Warehouse where I was a receptionist and they wanted to know why I hadn't listed. <laughs> I mean, I was in high school when that I had that job. So they really do dig in, and that's why it takes so very long. Right. Um, it, it's it's really incredible if this process doesn't get started. Jill mentioned how you know, and you mentioned Chris how there are four thousand um, presidential appointees, twelve hundred of which um, require Senate confirmation. Are all of these appointees new ones, or are they are some of them left over, um, or do some of them get retained from past administrations? Like how many of them are new ones, and how many of them like actually get retained? Uh, I would say, I mean, it is customary that at the end of an administration that all political appointees submit their resignation letter. That's certainly what I did in 2016, 2017. It is certainly the option of a new administration to retain some people, but that increasingly um, just does not happen. Um, so yeah, for functionally, you are talking about 4,000 new people along the way. So one other component of the transition that I, I want to talk about is we were talking about the personnel uh, and the security clearances and all of those things, but there's also policies that have to be changed. Yeah. And so we have to look at what what the Obama transition team had to do to make sure that the policies that then President Obama had run on um, could become effective once he took office. And of course, Obama, like now, entered office in the middle of very difficult circumstances. He had the Great Recession. Um, it's even more difficult now because we have the a bad recession, but we also have COVID. Um, and in the three months between when Obama became president-elect and Inauguration Day, what did the transition team do in order to guarantee that he was ready to implement plans and policies uh, on the day he took office? 
It's a great question because so many policy promises are made during a campaign. And first, I mean, it's it's a gargantuan task just to catalog all the things that have been said. Um, it's also funny, so many of them are, this is what I'm going to do on day one. Day one becomes a pretty busy day if you do everything you said you're going to do on day one. Um, so it's, trans, it's, it's gathering all those promises and then it's translating them into some cases it's legislation, some cases it's regulations, sometimes it's an executive order, and then sequencing them in the right way. So very early out of the, the gate, uh, uh, President Obama had said on the campaign trail he wanted to um, change the culture in Washington around ethics. And so um, his first full day in office, he signed an ethics pledge for his appointees. Um, from a legislative perspective, we were in the middle of the Great Recession, so it was putting together a big legislative package that ended up becoming uh, the Recovery Act, the $800 billion stimulus package that we pushed through that Vice President Biden helped implement. And then sort of on the medium longer term, it was health care. And, you know, the President, uh, Pre Senator Obama had talked a lot on the campaign trail about, um, you know, about creating certainly not universal health care, but expanding health care for more people. But, you know, what you say on the campaign trail doesn't always lend itself to a piece of legislation. So really the first year uh, of our administration was not just getting the economy out of the hole, but how do you put a workable policy into, pay, uh, into uh, a workable uh, policy on paper, which then ended up becoming the Affordable Care Act. And so that is, again, I mean, it's one of the things that you spend a lot of time during this transition period, figuring out what, what are all the things you said, how do we do them? And you've seen this play out with President-elect Biden where his campaign has signaled his first day will include some executive orders like uh, going back into the Paris Climate Accord, um, going back into the World Health Organization, um, reinstating um, the DACA program for, for DREAM Act kids. And so uh, it, they're doing the same process that we did in all transitions do. I just hope he doesn't use a Sharpie. Uh, <laughs> one question that's not exactly transition related, but that occurs to me as I was listening to you is cabinet positions would normally be um, going to the Senate for confirmation. And if we do not have two more seats, um, two more, if the Democrats don't win in Georgia, the two more senators, there will be. Republican control of the Senate. And do you think there's any risk that the Senate will refuse to confirm any cabinet officers? It's an interesting question. And I was going back through history to find out the last time a new president had a Republican Senate. And if I'm not mistaken, it would have been uh, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988. It, it, this is the unknown right now uh, because historically, or at least into the last, you know, couple of administrations, uh, the president gets his choice of cabinet. I mean, barring, you know, somebody who's incredibly unqualified or, you know, has got some personal issue of something, you know, it, you generally defer to the president. Um, in recent years, in the last two administrations, um, there's been increasingly greater party line votes on nominees. Um, that, that, that go well beyond someone's qualifications, simply the fact that I don't like this person. And again, we can argue whether that's an appropriate standard or not, but that does sort of create an issue if Democrats 
don't pick up these two seats in Georgia as to whether um, a Republican Senate will confirm any nominees or whether they will have their own litmus test for what an appropriate nominee is. You know, the, 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 uh, for Democrats, I guess the upside is that um, we've seen what happens if you don't get your people nominated, which is you do the Trump approach, which is you just create an entire federal government out of acting officials. Uh, you know, right now at the Department of Homeland Security, I think the, the top three or four slots are all controlled by acting officials. So that certainly hasn't impeded their ability to run an agency, but it's certainly not ideal to have that many positions uh, done by acting officials. Do people who are in acting positions have to have been confirmed by the Senate for some other position? Or could someone who's never been confirmed actually take over? Yeah, this is, I, now you're getting into territory that I don't know. I mean, it, I normally, if you are confirmed for something, they can make you acting for something else. They can even shift you departments. Uh, I, 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 it's an interesting question, actually. I, I don't know the answer to that. And I, we may be very soon going to find out whether that's possible yeah. or not. Yeah. I think we're going to do some research on that because it's <laughs> a major concern. And then you'd have to look at, well, if someone was confirmed in a past administration, could they serve as acting in a different administration? Um, I think we're going to have to look at that. <laughs> Definitely something interesting to consider for sure. Um, but to end this discussion, you know, Jill and I, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention just the situation that we face right now, um, given the refusal of Trump to follow any norms or really to admit that no lawsuit will challenge the election results and the significant delay in starting the transition process and how Trump is kind of using this lame duck period in really unprecedented ways that's left a lot of my peers, um, based on the conversations that I've had, um, really anxious and just really worried about what might happen in this process. But, um, you know, Chris, you mentioned this uh, a little bit before about how Biden is the right kind of person to meet this moment. So can you kind of reassure my generation, um, Jill's generation, all generations in between about how confident we can feel about um, this administration and what you've seen, um, just kind of taking like a bird's eye view at, um, you know, this transition team and what they've been doing and um, just why they're so prepared to confront some of these uh, challenges that are going on during this process and why they're the perfect ones to, um, you know, kind of bring us together on day one. You know, Victor, I will say the better part of the last four years have been, you know, one set of sleepless nights after another. And, and I thought after election night, we'd finally be done with these sleepless nights. Um, I think we probably got, you know, I think about 60, 70, some 70 more nights of these before January 20th. Um, I don't look, I think we are in uncharted territory right now for this transition. Um, I don't believe Donald Trump's legal challenges will succeed, but I do believe he he he's he's not intent on on winning this as much as he is on delegitimizing not only Joe Biden but our entire electoral process. It does have the feeling like if he can't win, he's going to burn everything down on his way out. So that troubles me. Leaving all of that aside, where I am optimistic, incredibly optimistic, is about Joe Biden. Um, I had a chance to uh, get to work with the president-elect um, starting back in 2008 when he was named as um, the vice presidential nominee. And I worked closely with him in the White House uh, when he was implementing the Recovery Act. Um, there is no more thoughtful, kind, decent person, empathetic person. You've heard all of that. But what, what really impresses me is this is a person who believes in the power of government to solve people's problems and who 
keenly is aware of how to make government work. And again, whether that's in you know, solving the Great Recession, whether it's dealing with Ebola, H1N1, whether it's restoring um, our credibility overseas, whether it's dealing with issues like racial justice, he understands that government isn't the answer to all of our problems, but is an important part of it. And he's surrounded by a lot of people uh, who, who know how to do that as well. Just his first pick out of the box, Ron Klain, as his chief of staff, uh, I, I've known Ron for many, many years. Um, boy, he's, he's one of the best. And it really is a stark contrast to hire somebody like Ron, who embodies experience and um, uh, j- just smarts um, over you know some of the criteria that we've seen lately, which is more loyalty to the president. So I am optimistic about what the president-elect can achieve. Um, I'm still slightly nervous about our ability to get to January 20th, but I think we are going to get there. Let's hope Thank for that. you yeah. so much. It, it's, I think everything you've said is so true. And mm-hmm. America is very lucky that given the impediments being put in front of the transition for Biden-Harris, that we have a candidate who is someone who has been in the Oval Office for eight years who is in the Senate for even longer, and who can handle these kinds of uh, obstructions. So we're very lucky, and I, you're absolutely right about Ron Klain. It's a brilliant choice. He has experience in Congress as well as the White House. Uh, he is really smart. He has experience in managing a pandemic, and I, I think we are in really good hands. And I thank you so much for sharing your detailed information and experience with transition to help us understand the importance of what's happening now. Um, if you have anything you'd like to add about how maybe anybody could push the Republicans to push the uh, current president to start the transition in an official way, uh, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I mean, Jill, it's what we've said for the last four years, which is, you know, write your members of Congress and 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 tell them that this is important. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think one of the most disappointing things over the last four years, but especially over the last two weeks, is that, uh, you know, Republican members of Congress know that Donald Trump has lost. They know that his claims of voter fraud are false. Uh, and they know that this that they they understand the impediment uh, that this transition delay is causing, and yet they're they're not saying anything, and it's and it's frustrating. But I don't think that should stop all of us from weighing in with our elected officials and letting them know that this is important, and and we have our eye on this as well. Yeah. I totally believe that a public outcry makes a difference. I know that it made a difference when. Richard Nixon was stonewalling, turning over the tapes to my team. It was the public reaction to his refusal that caused him to re- to do a U-turn and give us the tapes. So I, I know it can make a difference. It mattered in the Vietnam War. These are important. So you're right. Calling your congressman. I, I wish that there were a lot of Republicans listening to this podcast so that they would see the same thing that we're seeing. Um, as a lawyer, I can say that there is no chance that the election will be overturned by any of the lawsuits. They're being thrown out just one right after the other mm-hmm. because there are no facts. There is no law that supports them. And 
there's nothing left to do but to recognize that even if there are some small number of votes that may have been miscounted, there's not enough to overturn enough states that there's any possibility that uh, Donald Trump could win re-election. So thank you very much yeah, for thank you your so much. time with us today. We've enjoyed it, and we hope our listeners and viewers will too. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.